Hello and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Picosa. And today we are joined by Joe Jacoby, an Olympic gold medalist and performance coach who helps leaders and teams perform their best without compromising their lives. His strategies and concepts show people how to slow down, do less, and embrace simplicity. Joe continually refines and incorporates these principles into his own life at his Pyrenees Mountains home beside the 1992 Olympic canoeing venue in La Seo d'Urgel in the Spanish state of Catalonia. The same canoeing venue where along with his canoeing partner, Scott Strausbo, Joe won America's first ever Olympic gold medal in the sport of whitewater canoe slalom in the 1992 Olympic Games. Joe comes to us this morning from Spain and will talk to us today about humanity and being human at work. Joe, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. It is great to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, you're an incredibly cool guy. I'm super excited. We're both super excited to have you. Can you just uh, talk a little bit more about your background before we jump into the topic? Yeah, absolutely. So um, <laughs> background, I think maybe the most kind of interesting thing, I, you know, being a, having listened to some of your podcast episodes, I think what is sort of interesting to people is kind of where I am in my life right now. Um, I was between 2009 and 2014, I was the chief executive officer of USA Canoe Kayak, which is the national governing body for competitive canoeing underneath the umbrella of the United States Olympic Committee. And that was a hard and challenging and kind of a burnout type job. It was my dream job, but it wasn't that much of a dream. And, um, you know, a few years after I left, made a quality of life move to La Seo d'Urgel in Catalonia. And uh, this was not a move to kind of return to like a place of glory, this place where I won the Olympics. This was a move to challenge myself, uh, to learn new things every day. And I think it's really easy in life to kind of fall asleep in your in your bed and you know 20 years go by and you get really comfortable kind of waking up the same way in the same bed for a long time then you make a move to a completely different culture and, and you wake up in the morning and i always tell people there's these first couple of seconds of the day where you know something smells a little bit different or there are these different language uh sounds coming from outside the door and there's just this first few seconds of wh where am i and then it clicks in. Oh, yeah. And that brain just really kind of comes back to what am I going to learn today, whether that's language, whether that's culture, um, or just, you know, like a lot of other people who listen to this podcast, you know, how do you professionally improve yourself from, you know, working with clients, mostly in North America from a long way away from North America? That's incredible, honestly. Uh... I think that's a pretty good sort of preview into what we're really going to try and dive into when it comes to the impact of our environment and how we interact with it and how that can apply, obviously, in a professional setting. We had a, a glimpse of your surroundings this morning, too. You showed us a little bit out your window and have to say it looks very beautiful. Yeah, I, I don't take it for granted. I, you know, I know that these things are not permanent. We... We get a short amount of time here and my, Lisa, my checklist of like what to do every day is actually a really, it's a pretty short list. And when I look outside the window and I 
whether I'm watching the Spanish national canoeing team train on the 1992 Olympic course, which I, I can see what they're doing from the table where I'm sitting right now, or so I'm looking cool. up into the mountains. It's a very powerful reminder, almost like a, uh, an invitation from the outdoors to say, come outside and move, move purposefully outside. And I'm really good about um, kind of o obeying mm. what, the, what the Pyrenees are kind of calling to me each day. And I'm really good about getting outside. And even if it's just to go sit by the river and kind of take a few deep breaths next to the river, it, it takes you know, less than a minute to walk there. And wow. I'm on my way. But usually I'm out running. I, I like to run and ski and mountain bike in these mountains. And uh, we have all that very close to us right here. Mm. Wow. So it, it sounds like when you were the CEO of this company, you had a lot going on. Um, you mentioned that it was a pretty tough position. How did you go from that high level of stress to having a short checklist now? How did you find that? Well, I think it, it's a great question. And so, I mean, it, maybe not a bad place to start is, you know, I have so many clients that feel almost very stuck, very trapped in their work. They're not where they want to be. Um, you know, common comments from prospective clients are uh, my work and my work in life are kind of on a treadmill. I'm stuck. I'm sinking. I'm treading water. They get a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And I relate to it because that was my life uh, for a large portion of my time when I was running USA Canoe Kayak. And I think back to those days that um, I was just really, I was really bad at setting boundaries for myself. I was really good at taking care of everyone else. I was really bad at taking care of myself. And in that process, uh, I gained a lot of weight. I kind of, had a hard time getting high level perspective on critical issues. Mm -hmm. uh, my temperament was short. Um, and I just think that these, just like we talk about how good habits can sort of build one on top of each one on top of another and really kind of small consistent steps every day. Same with bad habits, bad habits will sort of take you the other way. And, my life was just kind of filled with, with bad habits. And, um, and it just, you know, eventually it just bottomed out. It was just a matter of, uh, you know, I, I, at the time I had a really challenging relationship with, with my board of directors and it was just really a matter of who was going to quit first. And it just unexpectedly happened to be someone on the, on the board who quit before I did. So I had to stay, I had to figure it out. <laughs> wow. That was a good that was a good step because, um, you know, I had a new board chairman come in who came from leadership in the United States Navy. And he was so good at kind of helping me uh, just kind of focus in on what mattered most. And we just, in that kind of military kind of way, just kind of figured out what was most important and did just that. You know, we, I always tell people, you know, our board meeting agendas went from being like 21 pages long to never being more than one page mm. long. Wow. And uh, not everyone loves that, but I mean, it was exactly what we needed at the time. That was just a work example, but because we were getting smarter about how we were 
um, running the operation of a national governing body under the umbrella of the U.S. Olympic Committee, you know, for an entire sport. At the same time, I was also prioritizing my health as well. And it, they just started as such small changes. Like I didn't lose a lot of weight quickly. I mean, it was just, it was such a slow process. But now it's like I realized anything good that's ever happened in my life has happened really, really slowly. Mm. Hmm. That's a powerful insight. When it comes to the work that you do, you talk about slowing down, doing less, finding simplicity in the things that you're doing. Like, I can, I can see how from your story that makes a whole lot of sense. How yeah. do you pitch that to the people you're working with? The biggest example I would say that, you know, it, people want really big ideas when it comes to slowing down, simplifying, doing less. First of all, I should say, uh, there's a wonderful book that I, you know, I've recommended a lot this year called Peak Performance by, uh, um, by Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnitz, two performance coaches, and they become friends. But the whole book is sort of based on the equation, the performance equation, stress, good stress, mm -hmm. uh, stress plus rest equals improvement. And so that's like, imagine going into a weight room, you, you lift weights, you stress the muscle, then you let it rest and it, it, it you know, you, stressing the muscle breaks the muscle down, letting it rest, it comes back together a little bit stronger than before and you improve a little bit. And I'm always looking for, usually the first thing I can do with a client is like looking for little points of rest in their day. And whether that's kind of finding five minutes in the morning to offer a, a journaling practice or even at work, um, I have, you know, I, we do mindful minute breathing breaks, literally just a minute of mindful breathing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't sound like much, but that performed over and over again does make a difference. Like it, it, even if it's just enough to interrupt a negative thought pattern or feedback loop, right? Uh, a minute of mindful breathing can just be enough to break that pattern. And if you repeat that enough, you kind of give yourself a tool. And so if you just start with a minute of mindful breathing and you start to kind of build out from there, you can do a lot of things with that. Like the, you'll begin to appreciate, you know, you're, you're training the same muscle of rest that you would be training if you were doing, you know, 20 minutes of meditation or if you were doing a journaling practice. Um, but you, you have to find these really small ways to test the idea of rest. And that is usually, I think, one of the most important keys to getting buy-in and creating the muscle memory in the world of more simple, slower, mm -hmm. and less. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense from, I, I came from an accounting background. I was working in finance and it was all day, every day, just go, go, go. Um, and if somebody had said to me, you need to take time to rest, I, I would have probably been like, well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> but, but thinking about it in that way of taking a minute of breath, that's something that you can do at your desk. That's something that you can do while you're walking to your next meeting, whatever that might be. I love that idea. It, there, it, it, the thing is, is that like anything, if you learn how to rest better, um, you will learn also how to, you'll be in a better position to stress 
more efficiently mm -hmm. and more effectively when it's time to stress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, this is not just some thing that sounds nice. This is evidence-based. This is the way athletes train. Mm -hmm. You don't just keep grinding and grinding and grinding. I know there's like all this kind of hustle porn out there in the world that we live in, but the most <clears throat> effective way to get work done well at a high quality is the magic is learning how to rest. And there, there you can take this in so many different directions, whether it's a mindful minute, breathing breaks, it's whether it's kind of working in um, kind of a certain work increment followed by a certain rest increment of time. Um, it can be, you know, adding really adding routines into your life that really save energy. Um, there, it, they can go on and on. And also not the least of which is learning how to sleep better. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's so much science and evidence based on that too. That was, that was actually when I was at USA Canoe Kayak was just an absolute nightmare. Part of my equation was that when I, when my health was bad, my nighttime routine was an absolute disaster. So learning how to kind of put the pieces together on that, so to kind of give myself a chance at a better sleep, mm -hmm. not just waking up early. And by the way, you guys know, and there's so much, it's another thing. It's like, I'm going to wake up at five in the morning and do this, this, and this. And it's like, well, it's good to wake up early if, um, provided that, you know, you learn how to kind of put yourself down well at night on the front end. And secondly, that you're actually doing good self-investment things. If you're just waking up at 530 to do more of the same work that you'd be doing at work, you're better off continuing to sleep more. Yeah. Mm. Your statement about, you know, work rest ratios is, is ringing a lot of bells in my head. I actually come from a kinesiology background. So uh, it's nice to kind of revisit some of these, these principles. Yeah, well, so, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it is based on actual oh, yeah. research, science, and evidence. I mean, we don't, you don't just say them because they make, but it's the only way to, if you want to get better at something, you have to figure out the, the rest part as well. Can you talk a little bit more about the stress part of the equation and what good stress maybe in a work environment might look like? I think I think there are a couple of things on 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 the stress part that, that come to mind. I mean, this is really varies from person mm -hmm. to person, but I think assuming that you know you've set some pretty decent boundaries for uh, rest when it comes to the working, doing the work part, uh, and I kind of handle the athletes that I coach sort of in the same way that we're not really focusing on multitasking. We really are trying to focus on kind of one thing at, at a time. And, um, you know, and I'll give you a couple of interesting examples to, to the workplace. So when I coach canoeing athletes here, um, I, I'm a coach that doesn't use a watch, even yeah. though we're in a timed sport, yeah. you know, where medals are one for time. I take time out of the equation. So I'm always, my, the question I always ask myself about the athletes with whom I work what sort of comes to mind for the athlete when you take time out of the equation? When they're not thinking about going fast, what do they think about? And their answers are fascinating. So for a lot of the coaching clients that I have, for example, someone who, you know, leads an inside sales team at a, you know, at a human resources platform company, they have a dashboard on their computer screen that they're looking at just all the time. It's just spitting out all kinds of information. And it's kind of like watching a stock ticker on TV. It just doesn't do you any good to be plugged in all the time. Mm -hmm. 
So we're sort of running experiments. Like, what does it look like when you turn the dashboard off? What do you focus on? Then, if you're not looking at how well the sales performance is going, you start looking at things like relationships with your team members or with clients, with customers. Like, what else could you do if you weren't staring at a dashboard all the time? And so this is kind of an interesting experiment to do. It, you know, I, I'm not making a suggestion that you should pull all your metrics out of the equation all the time, but if you can do, um, whether it's an hour a day without looking at a dashboard or you know, being distracted by messages, um, and you were really free to work on the most important part of your business, if you're running a sales team, what would you do? And it would probably be relationship-based. You would probably make times to really see how your team that you're leading is doing, uh, reaching out to key clients, and batching those together. If you can get away with doing that for one day a week as opposed to one hour a day, uh, even better, you know, but I, my sense is that if you just focus on what you have, what your current abilities are in the moment, that's much better than, that's much better than focusing on some big sales goal that you have that you're focusing on something you don't have right now. You mm -hmm. know, if your mm -hmm. goal is a million dollars in sales, it doesn't do you any good to think about a million dollars in sales. It only, you can only take what your experiences, what your current skills, what your current capacity is, and focus on using 100% of that. Anything not focused on that is energy, time and energy and resources lost. It also sounds like things that are within your control too, because if you're watching the ticker, that's probably everyone else's work being done as opposed to your own. So taking kind of ownership over what you do have control over. At 1,000%, Lisa. In my last Olympic Games as an athlete, which was 2004, we, we worked with a wonderful sports psychologist who was a, um, an Olympian in diving named Dr. Megan Nyer. And Megan's, what I always quote from Megan the most is, uh, it's not about what happens, but it is about choosing your response to what happens. And so that's exactly what you're, what you're saying is that, you know, what can you control about the situation and focus on that. You can only control what you can control. You know, it's, uh, there's all these things that are um, pulling us, our, our minds and our, our attention and our presence and our awareness into things that are just beyond our control. And these, uh, you know, Mike, when you go back, you go back to the original question about good stress, I think kind of Lisa hits on a really great point that any attention that goes away from um, what you can, 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 what you can control is, um, is an opportunity lost. That's a powerful message right there for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. It's, it sounds like really doubling down on the process and detaching from the outcome is one of the major themes here that I'm picking up. I mean, it's, uh, it's not any different for an Olympic athlete mm -hmm. that, you know, it's on the start line of a, of a big race. You know, you just get to a point where there's the work is done. You can't control the performance of the other athletes. You can only control what, what your performance is. And the more present and kind of with more, the most amount of calmness that you can sort of sit with your own abilities, your own, the work that you've done, your experiences, your kind of perspective on the world in the start line, that is your kind of um, your, your, your killer strength. You know, the closer you can come to 100% of your awareness going into what you currently have, 
you can't do any better than that. That's a pretty incredible learning right there. I, I just sometimes like to create a little bit of space around what a guest brings. And that right there is one of those points that I'm just like, yeah, let's breathe and let that one settle in. That's cool. If you're on the start line, I, right now I'm looking at the, at the start line of the 1992 Olympic whitewater canoeing course. And I remember, I, I always tell people, I, my canoe partner and I woke up at 4.45 in the morning for a race that started at 10, our start time was 10.17 in the morning. We woke up at 4.45. I can tell you what our routine was minute for minute from 4.45 till 10.17. I cannot tell you for the life of me what I remember about what happened after we crossed the finish line. And the point being, the reason I say that is that in your starting routine, it doesn't do you any good to think about what color medal you might win. That's just energy going to the wrong place. It's not going to help you. It's not going to make you paddle harder. You're not going to make you paddle better. And the only thing that will help you to paddle better is to, be able to sit with a hundred percent of awareness of what you currently have. And I think finding that on the start line is so important, you know, and that's why I'm such a big advocate of kind of developing, you know, certain morning routines and uh, certain things that are very, you know, self-investing and doing that every day. It's some, it's like you always hear in our world, like if you start over and over again, it's kind of like seen as a bad thing. And I just think, I never think about finish lines. Well, there's only one finish line that, I, that I'm headed for. And, we, and I believe that we're all headed for one. And we'll know it when we get there. And I hope for all three of us, it's a long time from now. But everything else, every time I've ever crossed like a quote unquote finish line, really what that means is that it is a new start line even crossing the finish line at the Olympic games wasn't finishing something. It was just means it was a new start to something. The only one finish line in life. We'll all know it when we get there. Hmm. Very cool. In terms of, I know, so kind of going back to the, the headline theme of like being human in the workplace and, and mm-hmm. humanity in a professional environment, because it's pretty clear what you've talked about in terms of how the environment contributes to overall performance. I heard your, uh, I heard you originally on a different podcast, the business of authority with Rochelle Moulton. We've had on our, our show and Jonathan Stark, who's actually going to be on this show not too long of a time, which is really neat. But you talked about, um, correct me if I'm wrong. You lived um, in Catalonia near the Olympic venue about a, for about a year before the Olympics started. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, good. Yeah. My memory recall is not too bad just yet. Can you talk a little bit about just how being in that, in that physical place and what it did, how that impacted your performance? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And it's something we don't think about a lot of, you know, in the sport of whitewater canoeing and, and just hear me out and we'll kind of make mm-hmm. the application to transfer to business. Every whitewater piece of white water, every rapid is different, right? You have a different amount of water flow, rocks or the formations on the bottom of the river are different, so they create different kinds of waves and hydraulics. And so every river is different. And if you wanna be good on the river where the Olympics are, you have to put in a lot of time practicing on the Olympic River. So that was our plan. And we wanted to spend about 100 days in the year before the competition living here in La Ceo d'Urgell. 
But the biggest thing I took out of that wasn't the 100 days of practice learning the river better. It was 100 days of immersing ourselves in the culture. And more specifically, I figured out at a young age, a year before the Olympic Games, I was, uh, you know, I was 21 years old. And I remember thinking, this is like almost like an epiphany. I do not want to wake up on the day of the Olympics as, a, as an American visitor in the Olympic Village. I want to wake up like I belong here. And that was it. It just, things clicked after that. The next time I, I left the hotel room and I went to like a supermarket to buy some cereal, the exchange with the clerk was different. Like now that person wasn't a clerk, that was a neighbor. Hmm. Or if I went for a coffee or back in those days, you know, transferring uh, traveler's checks into, into cash, um, you know, which was a whole different world back in 1991. But that was the thing. It was, by the time the day of the Olympics rolled around, August 2nd, 1992, there was already a sense of like uh, one goal accomplished. You know, when we were walking to the Olympic venue that morning, it felt like walking down the street in our hometown, like there was a connection. And we kind of felt like we, we had that sense of belonging here, that we were part of the community. But we, had, we worked on that. That had to be a very intentional part of what we were doing. To finish that day as the Olympic champions, that just kind of in, you know, endeared me to this place a thousand times, a thousand X more. And I never forgot it. And a big part of the reason I came back here, again, it wasn't to relive anything, but there were already friends in place. There was already a network, a community in place. And there was an opportunity to just completely take that learning, life learning to a much deeper level. And I think in work, it's the same thing. If you really want to kind of put yourself in a good position to improve, it's not just learning the skill of doing the right thing. Or said another way, it's not just knowing which path to travel, but it's giving yourself the capacity, the energy to walk that trail, to walk that path. And I think that's what we got out of kind of feeling more like a sense of belonging here. It was like that sense that we had unpacked the suitcase mm. fully and we weren't living out of, out of a duffel bag. You know, we were living like, you know, the clothes were in the dresser drawer and in the closet and kind of really had a sense of kind of home. Mm. I love that. And I think that it ties back to what you were talking about presence initially um, as you were going through the race and everything that we do in life how do you unpack at work? Like, how do you, how do you create that belonging or that place at work? Well, I think it starts with yourself, you know, before you can make it about other people, you have to put yourself in a position to kind of say, this is, this matters to me, which I also think in the world of career development, career transition, I think that we get so caught up in this. I want to work in that position. I want to do this kind of work. I want to work for that kind of company but we don't think very much about fit and alignment with the culture of, of that company. And so I think in the world of the, especially in the things that we talk a lot about on this particular podcast, career development and career transition is that it's, it is worthwhile the time and energy and resources to make sure there's a kind of a cultural fit and alignment 
so that it's the kind of place that you really want to adapt to. It's the kind of place that you're excited to kind of really give mm -hmm. back to and give into and that you'd be proud to be a part of. Not just the work, not just the title, not just the money, not just, you know, the work that's being done, but it has to be something about the, you know, you feel it when you walk in the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. This is what I want. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, you know, it doesn't mean it's not the right place, but you should really start to ask some challenging questions, you know, that, that I think that's how it's done. I traveled to, a, I raced canoes in a lot of different places. When I got here, there was just something about this place that just felt so good and a place that you wanted to kind of give, give into and give back to. That's amazing. Having capacity to go down the path. Yeah. Can we dive into that a little bit more? Sure. I, for me, I, you know, like I said, I, I think a lot of people are out there kind of very hungry for Mike, Lisa, tell me what to do. So what are the tactics, mm -hmm. right? Uh, just tell me where to go and, and, and I'll go and, and, you know, I'll do this better or I'll do that better. And I think that having the capacity, you know, the, the energy, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, is part of your job. It's part of your sense of being. Doesn't take a lot of time to do it, but these are boxes that you want to check on a daily level. Not like you have to train for a marathon, you know, to kind of check, check the, um, the physical health box. You know, you can do a little bit of yoga. You can do a little bit of, you know, breathing. You know, the spiritual side, you know, can mean a lot of things for different people. It can be as simple as uh, having a gratitude practice. Mm -hmm. I think that when you kind of put these, when this really kind of feels like how your, your path is anchored, how you, the, the, you sort of form capacity, it's never about whether um, you have enough time in the day to walk the path. It's always about, do you have the energy to do it? And I think that even in that world of Lisa, going back to something you said earlier about kind of controlling what you can control and not trying to control what you can't control, that is a huge part of managing energy. And managing energy is not just how you expend it, but it's how you replenish it as mm -hmm. well. It's both. And when you begin to kind of think of yourself as playing an energy management game, that's the capacity, you know, to walk the path. And that capacity doesn't just come from physical health alone, but you know, it comes from a sense of creativity that comes from your mental health. It comes from a sense of relationships that come from your emotional health it comes from a sense of gratitude that comes from your spiritual health. That sounds like, um, I'm hearing the seventh habit from Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people called sharpen the saw. And it's about sharpen the saw. rejuvenation yeah. and, and rebuilding productive capacity so that your ability to produce is, sustainable and you don't you don't burn out in that same way when it's taken care of you know when we especially when we talk about the people who are in career transition mm -hmm. um you know i have clients that are in career transition as well we know like if you have a current job and you're kind of looking for another job you have two full-time jobs it it takes a lot of time you know to do that and if you're going to really take that on without kind of taking care of yourself in that process, everything is going to suffer. I mean, we all know what the right things to do are, but 
you have to have the energy, you have to have the capacity to kind of pull that off to, to do it well. And, you know, anytime I sort of feel like someone is taking on a, a second full-time job and one of their kind of core life values is family, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, are you telling me that you're going to sacrifice the family relationships, this thing that just gives you so much fuel for your life so that you can just kind of eke out a little bit more work on your second full-time job. No, you know, put in the time with your family and you'll feel much, much better about what you can do and what you you can accomplish in that second full-time job. I totally agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How does, how does guilt play a role in this? Because I find that sometimes when people are trying to do all things, there tends to be an element of guilt. Well, Guilt, I think for me, when I hear that word, um, I, the first thing that comes to mind is just I'm always kind of looking for that person's sense of self-kindness and self-gentleness. Like if, that, if we can work on that, you know, and, and I always tell a client when we start working, when we kind of put out a goal, for example, to do mindful minute breathing and, and to be accountable back to me for doing that, that it's sometime it's not going to work. And it's like, what's more important to me than the little three or four day streak that you get going on mindful minute breathing breaks is how you are with yourself on the day, the first day that you miss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I think just kind of plays into just guilt in general. It's really more just kind of working with people on being more self-gentle and self-kind. And what I always tell people, Lisa, is that there is going, there is not going to be an anyone more critical of you than Lisa. Yeah. And you know why? Because the rest of us are too damn busy being too self-critical of ourselves to be worrying about being critical of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, it, you kind of have to sort of find some framework for saying like, what does this look like if, um, when I, miss or when it kind of goes off the rail anytime and this is something i use from my time in canoeing anytime that you're like navigating a whitewater river rapid in a canoe or kayak and the river kind of pushes the boat off course the earlier in the in the uh, mistake that you can make a correction the easier it becomes to make the correction so again coming back to guilt if you do something wrong, if your diet goes a little bit off or you miss a day of exercise or, you know, you um, miss a deadline or uh, you don't check all the boxes on your to-do list for that day, um, the energy that you spend beating yourself up is going to hurt you much, much more than having missed your, you know, your daily target by a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, a very powerful lesson. We have some questions that we ask of all of our guests that come on to the show. So I'm going to kick it over to, to Lisa. This tends to be her um, segment. But before we do, I just want to say this has been a whole lot of fun. I really appreciate everything you've been able to share with us and certainly with our listener. Thanks, Joe. You, this has been great. Enjoying it so much. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. So one of the questions we like to ask, um, because work can get kind of serious at times, but what would you say is the most fun that you've had in your career so far? The most fun in, in my career 
You know, I, um, I just wrote, I, I write a weekly blog post called Sunday Morning Joe, and I just wrote a post this past week about, I've written about it before, but eliminating negativity from, um, you know, from the, my work life. And it doesn't happen easily. I know it's not easy. It's not always completely within everyone's control. I, I feel, I would say what's fun about my work right now is that every client that I have is a call. Like I look forward to their challenge, to their issue. That is fun for me. And, you know, I think the reason that that happens is just because I put a lot of time into fit and alignment on the front side. Yeah. I mean, I'm like everyone, it would be great to have a few more private clients here or sort of speaking engagements there. But if the fit isn't there, you know, that is going to make this whole process a lot less fun. Yeah. So I think, you know, putting in the time on fit and alignment just sort of leads to really fun client interactions. And I will say that it doesn't happen a lot in my work, but what I, one thing I'm qualified to do, just a lot of companies don't want to spend the time and resources to do it, is taking um, their groups and their teams out to the river you know, for certain kinds of team building experiences or, um, you know, uh, uh, the development of employees or implementation of a new theme or a new program at work, but actually taking that process out onto a whitewater river, whether in canoes, kayaks, or rafts, that's pretty fun too. Mm. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. It's a, it is a lot of fun. I would, I, that would be f fun to do that more in what I do. Right now, what is just really very, going very well in my work is, is coaching on the screen. That, if you had told me that two years ago, like that was going to be where I was at this stage, coaching on Zoom is just, uh, it works really, really well. I'm super happy with that. And given that both of you have seen what I'm looking at yeah. outside my window, it's <laughs> not, that's not a bad deal either. Nope, not at all. Opens up a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So the other question, a lot of our listeners are going through some sort of career transition, as you mentioned. Um, right. And so that often takes some risk as well. So what would you say is the biggest risk that you've taken in your career so far and how did it turn out? Well, I think also the biggest risk that I took was pr probably um, was giving up a salaried job as the CEO of an Olympic sport organization. It wasn't like a super high paying job, but it was a good opportunity that had, you know, good opportunities to um, go up. I think that, you know, coming here, I think anytime you really put yourself in a position of, a, of uncertainty, yeah. which I think is a huge, huge opportunity and skill for people in transition. My thing is don't wait for the big thing to practice uncertainty. Try to find like really, really little things mm -hmm. to practice uncertainty. You know, even if that's just like changing the kind of interaction that you have with the barista at Starbucks, mm -hmm. a different kind of conversation or, you know, little challenges that you put in place that have just very little consequence to it if it goes wrong. Because how you practice the small things is how you practice the big things. Yeah. I think finding ways to, you know, practice risk and discomfort and uncertainty in really um, in ways where the consequences of a mistake is really, really small 
Because again, you're using the same muscle memory as when that situation gets really big. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And it, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of that breaking down to build back up um, in terms of the muscle memory and all that kind of stuff. So very cool. Absolutely. All right. And then the last question I have is, what is the best piece of career advice that you have ever received? Uh, well, I should say I've only had one sort of pay, kind of paycheck job in my life. I mean, you know, it's, uh, and, you know, I don't really feel like the advice I got in that served me like so well. I'm, you know, I'm sure that my, not my first board chairman, but my second one, the one I referred to from, there was the guy from the U.S. Navy leadership. He always had a lot of good, he was always had a lot of efficiencies in what he was doing. And, uh, you know, was very inclusive in the way he, that he worked with people. But I just think what stands out to me, the advice that kind of always resonated with me and that I became very, very good at then kind of doing myself and now giving to people, especially in career transition and career development is how you take care of yourself. Uh, it, you know, you have to have a plan for doing that. You, you, I, I read LinkedIn and I'm just reading about all these, like, you know, how you can make your resume this or how you can make your interview that or how you can do this on the follow-up call and optimize this and kind of reduce that. And those are all great things, but it's just not sustainable if you're not figuring out ways to expand your capacity, to manage your energy, to control what you can control, you know, to use Lisa's words. So yeah, I, I think that's always what I kind of come back to is to the people in career. Um, transition. And I think having a strategic plan, a personal strategic plan, I, I notice everyone in, in business and work is really good at strategic plans uh, for do, building around their business, but no one does it for themselves. And I now do this with all of my clients is building personal strategic plans. They very rarely yield surprises, but it feels really good to get it down on paper and then to put the tactics underneath that. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you're someone that is, you know, we, you know, if you, if you say that like family is important to you, I mean, it's okay if it's not, I mean, it, I know everyone says it, but we have to really find out like what really kind of moves you mm -hmm. and the most and being attentive to, to those things. But if family is going to be on there, if you want to do well over on your work side, you better not cut the family side out. You have to have very specific tactics. Like, what does that mean to you? Does that mean, are you focusing on relationships with your children, with your spouse, with, you know, aging parents? And there's not like one, it's, you can't just say, oh, time with my family. No, I think it actually requires, if, if that's really a true strategy for you, you know, on a personal level, with me, we're, we're going to get down and, kind of get a lot more specific with it to make sure that you know what boxes that you're checking on a daily basis. And it may seem like very obvious to people, but I'm always blown away by how engaged and how good people feel when they actually go through the process of kind of working together to getting it down on paper. Hmm. Very cool. Really quick before yeah. we, we sign off for the day, where can people find you, Joe? Um, so, uh, a couple of quick things that I'll tell you, um, if you could just go to my main website, uh, joejacobi.com, J-O-E-J-A-C-O-B-I.com. All my websites are very, very short, mm -hmm. but 
But <clears throat> from there, you have two options. You'll either learn more about Five with Joe Performance Coaching, or you'll learn, you'll sign up for Sunday Morning Joe, which is my weekly Sunday morning newsletter, which is not business development. It is just helping people to kind of work through challenges and figure out what's important. And it's just my way of just kind of writing from my heart every Sunday morning. That is a great way to kind of keep up with me, keep in touch. And when people reply to those Sunday morning emails, um, I don't have a virtual assistant. All emails come right to me. And um, that's really the good way. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn mm -hmm. as well. So uh, LinkedIn is a good place to find me. Fantastic. It's been incredible having you. Thank you so much again for your time and yes, your insights you. are going to, they're going to help some people who are listening to this. There's no question. Hey, thank you guys for all that you're doing. And uh, just, I think more than anything, I think in the world that you're in, thank you for being open to this kind of very different mindset mm -hmm. in the world of, you know, career transition, career development, and just what it means to uh, kind of find that humanity in the process. We're not robots. Nope. We are human beings going through this process, which means we're imperfect. It means we have doubts, we have fears, and that we're always changing. And so that's the human part of all this. And so um, thank you guys for being open to that. A pleasure. Thank absolutely. You. On our end as well. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you join us again uh, for our following show for the Career Builders podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Pekosek. Our guest was Joe Jacoby, and we'll be with you again soon. Bye.